Good evening, everyone, and welcome to what promises to be a very interesting evening, though I will not predict whether all of the comments of our speaker on the future of Europe will be unambiguously optimistic. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director of the LSE, and it's my considerable pleasure to be able to preside over the inaugural lecture for the Harold Lasky Chair. I'm going to take the liberty of saying slightly more than one does often at lecture introductions. First, who was Harold Lasky? I'm assuming most of you know that he was a famous LSE professor. Harold Lasky taught at the school from 1920 to uh, his death in 1950. He was, for the majority of that time, professor of political science. He was a political theorist. He was also an economist. He was a widely read author for the broader public and a lecturer in, a various other, in various other settings. He was active in politics. Indeed, he was probably the most important socialist intellectual in Britain during most of his lifetime. He was chairman of the British Labour Party during the crucial years immediately after World War II, at the end of the war. At the same time, he promoted pluralism, emphasizing the importance of voluntary associations, such as labor unions and community activism. His influence was international. He was important in struggles against colonial rule from South Africa to especially India, where it was long said the Congress party kept a seat at cabinet meetings ready should Professor Lasky show up. He had great trust and hope in the prospects, not just of socialism in general, but of the Soviet Union. And he did not live, as did some others of his era, to see them dashed. His writings were voluminous. They were extraordinarily influential. They were controversial. And some of them faded from public recognition in recent years after his death. But he remains one of the touchstones for British self-understanding on the political left and for the LSE as an exemplary intellectual. So it is appropriate that we have an exemplary intellectual holding the Harold Lasky chair. This is a newly created chair recognizing the importance of Harold Lasky and recognizing the importance of political science. After all, it's in our name, even if people tend to forget that sometimes and just say LSE. The school was founded in 1895 with a strong sense of two major lines of inquiry and teaching, economics and political science. Both were understood more broadly than academic disciplines have become, and they were understood as the two great tools for marshalling knowledge to build a better society, for effective action in Britain and around the world. 
Lasky was an important advocate for this as well as example of it. And today, it is an honor for me to congratulate Professor Simon Hicks on his appointment as the first Harold Lasky Professor of Political Science. As I am sure you are all aware, or you probably wouldn't have turned up tonight, Simon Hicks is one of the premier political scientists of his generation. And I could at this point resort to the device of many introductory speakers and say, Simon needs no introduction. (laughs) But it's not true. He needs an introduction. He needs an introduction partly because he is well-known and influential in different areas, and we should recognize the work that has spanned them. He is among the foremost thinkers on the future of Europe, his topic tonight, and on European politics and institutions. He is also a political scientist who has worked on the more methodological and theoretical underpinnings of the analysis of democracy and the ways in which democratic institutions such as elections work. Simon joined the LSE faculty in 1997, having studied as an undergraduate at the school 1987 to 1990. Even you, Simon, are aging. (laughs) He was promoted to professor in 2005. He is the author of over 50 articles in top international journals and political science, numerous policy papers, and seven books, including The Political System of the European Union with Bjorn Heiland, What's Wrong with the EU and How to Fix It, His advice was not taken as widely as he might have wished. Democratic politics in the European Parliament with Abdel Nouri and Gerard Roland. Simon regularly gives evidence to committees, the House of Commons, the House of Lords, and the European Parliament. He was elected a fellow of the British Academy in 2011. It's important in the tradition of Lasky that I underline, he is an exceptionally good academic intellectual. He is an exceptionally good policy analyst. And he is an exceptionally good public communicator. These do not always come in the same package. And it's very lucky for us that they do. Simon's talk today on the future of Britain and Europe comes amidst the countdown to a very likely in-out referendum on the UK's membership of the European Union. I have no doubt that Simon's talk tonight will be decisive in that debate. He will discuss possible options for the reform of Britain's relationship with the EU and the likely long-term consequences for the UK and the EU of either a yes or a no vote. As usual, there will be an opportunity to ask him questions at the end. You can start debating or asking questions using Twitter with the hashtag, hash LSE Europe. But whether you use Twitter or not, please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event because it is being recorded and many people were turned away at the doors and that will be their only opportunity to hear it.
now. Please join me in welcoming Simon Hicks to deliver his lecture on the future of Britain and Europe. Thank you very much, Craig. It is indeed a, a great honor. I was an undergraduate in 1987 to 1990, and I remember now one of the first books I ever read was, was uh, Barry Shearman and Ivor Kramnik's uh, biography of Harold Lasky. And one of the things I took away very much from that book was, was Lasky's role, um, not just as a researcher and as a scholar, but also secondarily as a teacher of successive generations. And it's often underestimated the impact we have on the world um, through our successive generations of teaching. And, and one of the things I most enjoy is, is my, my first-year undergraduate course with about 200 undergraduates, um, Introduction to Political Science. So, and then the third thing about Lasky, really, is his role as a public intellectual, and um, often underestimated or frowned on by some quarters. And, and I don't necessarily think that, uh, as social scientists, there's necessarily a trade-off between our our research, our teaching, and our, and our role as a public intellectual. So, so it is a great honor for me to, to take this chair, and I'd like to thank you very much um, for this opportunity. So for tonight's talk, um, I thought I would, uh, given my background, my research, and also my, my role in giving evidence to Parliament, talking to policymakers, I thought this would be an appropriate topic. Um, and first, let me say a few things about how Lasky applies to this sort of topic. So, of course, he never wrote about Britain and Europe. He died in 1950 before, really, the debate in Britain about this happened. But actually, in his own life, um, he did have a contribution, I think, to, to this debate, and it's the following. So Lasky was in the United States from, and Canada from 1915 to 1920, and he was based at Harvard. And at that time, he was opposed to any centralization of power in Washington as he believed that the only way to get socialism in America was to start in Massachusetts and hoped that it would spread to other states. And if you centralised power in Washington, this would prevent socialism in Massachusetts. He then came back to Britain in the 1920s and became very active in the senior ranks of the Labour Party. And at that time in Britain, there was a big debate about decentralisation, devolution, we call it now, and even federal Britain. And at that time, he was totally opposed to any decentralisation of power in Britain, because he said the only way you get socialism in Britain is dictated from Whitehall or Westminster. <laughs> so I actually think that this tells us a lot about understanding people's attitude towards Europe. Um, because basically, like Lasky, most of us, our views on where we'd like power to be located, whether it's at local government level or national government level or at European level, is secondary to our own political preferences, second to whether how we think the role of the state or the role of markets and whether we decentralise power to our local government level, well, maybe that we would get the policy outcomes I want if we do that. Or maybe if we give powers up to the European level, often we might get European social and environment regulations that some people might want and so on. Or if we pull out of Europe, we might be more free and have a more liberal market if we pull out of Europe. So... So I'm going to return to this at the end when I talk about... Um, I'm going to show you some research evidence on explaining British attitudes uh, towards Europe. And I think there's a lot in this to help us understand how we explain British attitudes towards Europe. So here's what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to answer, try and answer four questions. And, and the slides I've prepared are a mix of different things that hopefully will appeal to quite a broad audience because it's a, a public audience. But also there's a few kind of geeky political science things for my colleagues down here at the front. Um, but uh, is Britain part of Europe? Where's the EU heading? Can there be a new relationship for Britain? And will we vote 
to leave. And if some of you know my research and my views on Europe, there may be some surprises along the way. See if you can spot them. So the story, I think, begins um, with trying to understand Britain's overall attitude towards Europe. And it's really one of condescension. We're just better than the rest of them. And the nicest example of this is, is a famous quote from Russell Bretherton, who was a British Foreign Office representative at the meeting of the Spark Committee. The Spark Committee was a committee of officials from all the foreign ministries um, in Europe then to, to design what became the European Economic Community, the EEC. And the famous meeting was in Messina, and he left the meeting, and these were his parting words. The future treaty which you are discussing has no chance of being agreed... If it was agreed, it would have no chance of being ratified. If it were ratified, it would have no chance of being applied. And if it was applied, it would be totally unacceptable to Britain. You speak of agriculture, which we don't like, of power over customs, which we take exception to, and institutions which frighten us. Monsieur le Président, Messieurs, au revoir et bonne chance. So this is the sort of attitude Britain has had since the beginning. You ain't going to agree. If you do agree, it's not going to work. And if it does work, we wouldn't want to be part of it. Uh, and that, you know, that's the kind of attitude all the way along, um, apart from a very short period of, of, of the single market, which I'll get back to. Part of the problem all the way along is Britain has generally had a different attitude towards Europe than most of our continental cousins. And for most, of, most Europeans, the project of European integration is a political project, primarily. The economics is a kind of positive side benefit, but primarily it's a political project. It's about peace and reconciliation and, and moving towards some kind of political union in Europe for collectively governing us ourselves in this small corner of the Eurasian continent. That's not the view from Britain. From Britain, it was, all, it was much more of a utilitarian calculation about this being purely an economic project. And this is because our identity has always been torn. We're not sure in Britain whether we are Europeans or not. And one of the nicest examples of this was a survey by Ipsos Mori last year asking people, which country other than Britain has values closest to your own? And at the top, you can see there Australia, USA, New Zealand, Canada, and, you know, Germany and France, third and fourth. And if you actually add it up, I think 35% of respondents named another Anglo-Saxon country, 25% named a country, another country in Europe. Um, I count Ireland in both of those columns. Uh, but what you can see all the way along, we've had this split identity, whereas that's not the same split identity for most of our continental cousins. Part of it comes from uh, deep underlying values that, that we think of perhaps ourselves being torn. This is data from the World Values Survey. The World Values Survey are surveys every five years across the world where they have a batch of questions and ask people about attitudes towards government, attitudes towards the economy, attitudes towards public spending or the death penalty, gun control, gay rights, uh, attitude towards whether you want your, how you would feel about your child marrying someone from a different country or a different race. And this is a sort of summary map of the world based on on these different values. And this is a, a dimension that says countries down here, they're primarily in, citizens are primarily interested in survival. Countries up here, citizens are primarily interested in self-expression. These this citizens down here are, are more traditional societies, more religious societies. Up here, they're more secular societies. And here's the UK, here's Britain. So Britain, you know, pretty close to Belgium, some other European states, very close to the US, New Zealand and Australia. So a mix of 
Anglo-Saxon values and perhaps more mainstream Protestant European values, you might say. The other thing is our economy is also somewhere between the continent and North America or the Anglo-Saxon world. So this is data I put together from OECD. This is two dimensions of, of economic policy. This is public spending, excluding defence policy as a percentage of GDP. And this is how liberal a country's labour market is. So often in Europe over the last decade or so, there's been a debate about what people call flex security. So liberalised labour markets and high levels of public spending to, as a sort of safety net for citizens if they get laid off. And Denmark has been the country that most people have been using as an example. Um, the UK used to be five or six years ago over here, but with cuts in public spending, we're heading back towards a more Anglo-Saxon model of liberalised labour markets and lower levels of public spending. So we're, again, a kind of halfway house between Europe and our Anglo-Saxon friends. Trade integration also. We are not as dependent on the EU and the European single market as perhaps some pro-Europeans like to think. So these are two measures of economic integration in Europe taken from Eurostat. The first one down here is trade with the rest of the EU as a percentage of a country's total trade. And so the average in the EU here is around 63%. So that means 63% of a country's imports and exports are with other EU countries and the rest are with countries outside the EU. Here's the UK. 47% is with the rest of the EU. That's a lot as a proportion of our trade. In fact, the EU is our largest trading partner, but we're nothing like the EU average. Here's another measure, which is EU trade as a percentage of a country's GDP, percentage of a country's total wealth. And again, the EU average here is around 42% of a country's economy, total economy, dependent on trade with the rest of Europe. For the UK, it's around 21%. So it's important, and 21% is a pretty serious chunk of our economy, but it's nothing like the average in Europe. So, for example, this has big implications for debates about the euro. We might look at our continental friends and say, why on earth are you developing a single currency? That's the reason. Most of our trade is with other countries. We need to have a single currency because it, there will be massive economies of scale if we reduction of transactions costs if we, exchange, if we get rid of our current currencies because of the level of trade integration we have. That's just not the case for the UK. The other thing I'd, that's quite interesting, when looking across time, is the difference in UK public attitudes that perhaps stem from these, these uh, underlying forces. So these are data from Eurobarometer every six months. Um, Eurobarometer up until 2011. They stopped asking the question for some reason. <laughs> Between 1973 and 2011, they, they asked the question, do you think your country's membership of the EU is a good thing? A nice, simple question. And so here's the uh, general EU attitudes, and you can see how a growth in support for Europe in the early 1980s, early, uh, up to around 1991, and then a collapse in support in the early 90s, and then sort of hovering, this is the, like... I could map applications to European studies programs at the LSC on the same graph. But, I mean, uh, and UK public attitudes grow, grew in support. I mean, when I was an undergraduate here, this was the fashionable thing to be, was to study Europe and be interested in Europe. It was the future, the European single market, and then suddenly a collapse in British support. And the gap between European, British attitudes and the average, Europe, average across Europe just grew in that period. The other thing is if you compare British attitudes to a, the two countries that joined at the same time as we did in 1973, Ireland and Denmark. 
So Ireland always was slightly more pro-European than we were. You can see here the, the, the blue and the green line. But over the 1990s and 2000s, the gap is enormous. Irish people very strongly pro-European, whereas when you look back at this period in the early 80s, not much difference between us. The bigger contrast, interestingly, is Denmark. Denmark has a very similar identity to Britain, in a sense. They, they think of themselves as Scandinavian primarily, maybe European secondarily, uh, very suspicious of Germans, and Germans buying houses in Denmark was a big issue through the 1980s. There was even a protocol attached to the treaty to try and stop the Germans doing that. Um, but something happened in this period, and Denmark suddenly became much more pro-European than Britain. In fact, Britain is, the, of all the member states in the EU, the least pro-European. And what is it the British people want? So the best data on this is from the uh, British Social Attitude Survey. So the British Social Attitude Survey, since the early 90s, has asked a nice question, which is, um, what would you like... What are your views on Europe? And you have several options. Leave the EU, stay in the EU or reduce its powers, leave things as they are, stay in the EU and increase its powers, work for a single European government. The colours didn't quite work here. Black at the top here is work for a single European government. Light blue down the bottom is leave the EU. So if you look at leave the EU plus stay in the EU but reduce its powers, it's grown over time and it's close to 70%. So this is the leave the EU, this is the stay in the EU and leave it as it is. The key swing voters are the, we want more powers back from Brussels. You don't like the fact that this is essentially a political project. Um, we'd, like, we'd like to pretend it's a, a just an economic project, please. And now we come to where we are now and what has been happening in the last few years in the EU and the response of the EU to the Eurozone crisis. And what it is happening in the EU is a really fundamental shift in the nature of the European Union. And I don't think in Britain we quite uh, appreciate that. So for much of the 1980s and 2000s, you can think of the EU as building a sort of microeconomic union, meaning it was about creating a market on a continental scale, removing barriers to the free movement of goods, services, capital and labour, and agreeing common standards on environment policy, social policy, competition policy, and so on. And Britain was fully on board for this project. In fact, you can argue it was Britain's project. It was Margaret Thatcher's commissioner, Lord Cofield, who wrote the white paper. Britain was really pushing this in the council, in the EU, to create a European-wide single market. And the single mar a lot of the treaties since the Single European Act and since the single market was completed in 1992 have been about logical follow-ons from creating that single market. You might say you want a single currency, you don't have a proper single market unless you share a single currency. You have to have common policies on the free movement of people if people suddenly have rights to move around to different member states and so on. But since the Eurozone crisis, the, main, the project for most mainstream European countries and the members of the Euro has now shifted to something different. It's now moving towards building a new, what I call a macroeconomic union in Europe. And it's not just the Eurozone member states, it's all the other member states who'd like to be members of the Euro. And what are they doing? They're building a new architecture for governing the, the Euro. There's a European stability mechanism, which is a large bailout fund that, that comes out of national budgets to bail out states in, in economic crisis. There's a fiscal compact treaty, which forces states to balance their budgets and force its states to enforce budgetary discipline as part of national constitutions or national legislation. There's a pact 
between the governments to start to coordinate national economic policies like unemployment benefit, pension age, and so on. And there's a banking union with a common set of banking rules that would allow the European Central Bank to pull the plug on any bank uh, that doesn't meet its capital requirements. And the ECB, the European Central Bank, is emerging as a lender of last resort de facto, even if not de jure as a lender of last resort. This is something fundamentally different. This is much more similar to a sort of federal instruments that the US federal government has. There's not a big budget like the federal government, but the sort of regulatory infrastructure that the US federal government has to secure the dollar and stability within the US economy. Britain is not part of this. In fact, Britain is pretty isolated in a lot of the key things that have been built in Europe over the last 10 years. So this comes from a colleague of mine, Ian Begg, who wrote a paper for a Swedish think tank. And I read the paper pretty much at the same time as I saw a quote from Nigel Lawson, who'd written a piece in the Times saying, you can't quite see this, it says at the top there, the choice of Britain is to either to be isolated inside Europe or to be isolated outside Europe. <laughs> so here you have the EU28, which includes Britain. You have the Eurozone. You have the, the Euro Plus Pact of coordinating macroeconomic policy. You have the Fiscal Compact Treaty. You have the Charter of Fundamental Rights, which includes everyone except us again. And you have the Schengen of Free Movement, which has received a lot of um, coverage, of course, over the last few months with the migration crisis in Europe. And then outside all that, you have the UK. We already have a semi-detached status in the EU. So it's, a real, it, it's an issue, and the issue that Lawson raised is, can we really be at the top table? Can we really be a leader in Europe if we're not part of any of the mainstream institutions in the EU? Um, And he gave the analogy of, imagine European finance ministers meet on a Tuesday morning in Brussels and they discuss fixing the euro. And they know that on the agenda in the afternoon is a new regulation on financial services. And they promise they won't discuss it in the morning because it's not part of their remit. But over lunch, they have a little discussion. And then in the afternoon, they ask the British finance minister to join them, and he protests against the financial regulation. And all the Eurozone finance ministers look at each other and smile and all vote together. Adopted by majority voting, and Britain loses. So this is the world we now face in the EU. In fact, data on voting in the council from VoteWatch which is an NGO that I set up with colleagues in in Brussels about 10 years ago, where we track all votes in the European Parliament and the European Council. So this is all the data from 2009 to 2015 of all the votes that have taken place in the Council, the main EU legislative institution. And this is the percentage of times that a member state government has been on the losing side in votes in the Council. (laughs) You might say, hey, look, Britain's been on the winning side 80% of the time. But we've been on the losing side more than any other member state. Most decisions are made by consensus. Most of the decisions are made by unanimous agreement um, in what the shadow of a potential split. We don't want to reveal we have a split. We'll agree to differ. We all agree that we sign up. Uh, The evidence suggests that Britain has been on the losing side. In fact, but this is the allies for the UK. You can see this is the the time, the the proportion of votes in which the UK has voted with other member state governments. Up here, Sweden, Netherlands, Denmark, our northern European friends. Down here, Germany, the member state we vote the least frequently with in the EU Council. 
does it really matter, though? There's other research that looks from uh, Robert Thompson in Stirling in Scotland. Um, he's collected data on where do we place policy outcomes on policy scales, from 0 to 100, left to right, uh, high, low regulation, and where would we place all the governments on all these policy scales, and where would we place the outcome from the EU? And if you actually look at this, Britain's, this is the average distance on a scale from 0 to 100, the average distance from policy outcomes, the UK historically is doing really well. So we may be outvoted, but actually when it comes to policy outcomes, we are very close on average to policy outcomes from Brussels. So in fact, we do pretty well, particularly when it comes to governing the single market. And in fact, if you dig into the data, we win a lot on some of the things we really care about, like financial services regulation, the free movement of people, uh, and so on. Can't see the title here. But one of the things that actually worries me more than this sort of stuff is the UK's voluntary isolation from what I call emerging democratic politics in the EU. So I've written uh, in the past to argue that what's been missing in the EU, if we're really genuinely trying to build a political union, is proper democratic politics. We need to start somewhere to think about how to build democratic politics in Europe. And one of the most interesting things for me was a little passage in the Lisbon Treaty where there was rules changed on how the Commission President is chosen. The Commission President is the most powerful actor in Brussels. He's the chief executive, the prime minister of the commission, if you like, first among equals. The commission has a a monopoly on legislative initiative, so it's a very powerful body. And they changed the treaty in the following way. Taking into account the elections to the European Parliament, and after having held the appropriate consultations, the European Council, that's the heads of government, acting by a qualified majority, shall propose to the European Parliament a candidate for president of the commission, the candidate shall be elected by the European Parliament by a majority of its component members. So the British government, we had the European elections in May 2014. In Between January and May 2014, the British government, the British Perm Reps Office in Brussels, I was doing a lot of talks in Brussels, and the UK Permanent Representation Office would come to my talks and always stand up and say, no, no, that's the wrong interpretation of the treaties. And everyone would look at them like they were mad. Um, the UK government said, no, there's no change to the status quo. It still says the European Council shall propose the candidate for commission president. So we, the governments, get to propose somebody. And that's not, no different. But all the other member states said, well, why did we add, shall be elected by the European Parliament, taking into account the elections to the European... They're not just cheap talk. They're actual words that suggest we're going to do something. So for everybody else, every other member state, they interpreted the change in the treaty to say that there would now be a contest for the Commission President. There'd now be rival candidates. There'd be campaigns across Europe. And the winner of that would naturally be nominated by the governments um, to be proposed to the European Parliament. In fact, Klaus Weller, the Secretary General of the European Parliament, said, but wait a minute, doesn't the Queen formally nominate the Prime Minister? But you wouldn't say it's the Queen that elects the Prime Minister. She has to nominate the person who's got the most seats in the House of Commons. So we, the European Council, are now just like the Queen, he said. We will just nominate who has got the most seats in the European Parliament after a European election. So in the build-up to May 2014, all the political families in Europe chose candidates for the Commission President. We even got into the lexicon of Eurospeak, a new word, Spitzenkandidaten. Excuse my German. Uh, No candidates from Britain. The Conservatives 
who are not part of the European People's Party on the centre-right, did not have a candidate, and they ran a none-of-the-above campaign. Labour, who are part of the European Socialists and Democrats, refused to support the Socialists and Democrats candidate, Martin Schulz, because they said he's too federalist. We don't like that. The Liberal Democrats also refused even to campaign for Kiefer Hofstadt, the Liberal candidate, also because they thought he was too pro-European. And it's not Chatham House Rules, because it's going to be a podcast, but I'm going to tell you a little story anyway. So. <laughs> so I was doing some briefings for BBC journalists on their coverage of European elections, and I told them that this is what's going to happen. And afterwards, I had a chat with one of the journalists, who I can't name, who said, well, we've been told we cannot actually talk about the Spitzenkandidaten. We cannot actually talk about it. I said, why? They said, we don't want to upset number 10. I said, you're the BBC. And then he said, well, yes, but our licence is up for renewal. <laughs> so here's what happened. So this is, you know, the press ignored the, to this data... Um, we collected uh, on coverage of the, the number of British press articles on the candidates. Here's Juncker, Schultz, Verhofstadt, Scott Keller, and Josie Boveda, the Greens, Alexis Tsipras from the radical left, who some of you now have heard of. Um, <laughs> here's the mentions in the British press in the build-up, week of 28th of April to the 4th of May. Then we have the elections, and then after the elections, the British press start to talk about Juncker. It's a bit late. Contrast this between German coverage and British coverage. of this, uh, These are mentions in the German and the British press of Schulz and Juncker from the beginning of the campaign through... Here was the, the German-Austrian uh, uh, TV debate. Here was the, what they call the Eurovision TV debate of all the candidates together. Here's the week of the European elections. So here's German coverage in the press, three to 500 articles a week mentioning the two names together, Here's British coverage. <laughs> in fact, there was a survey done by one of my colleagues here uh, on the experience of this process um, after the election. And two questions they asked I thought were very interesting. One was, did you watch any of the TV debates? Of course, you can lie. But did you watch any of the TV debates? Most of them in the UK streamed online. Can you name one or more candidate unaided? You can't lie about this. Either you can or you can't. Here's Luxembourg. Everybody in Luxembourg can name Juncker. Here's Germany, Belgium, Greece. These are the candidates who stood. Here's the UK. That's me and my students. Essentially, we've opted out of what, to me, is the most exciting and interesting thing that's happened in European politics in the last 20 years. <sighs> Despite telling the British government and the BBC and everyone else to get it, they just don't listen to me. Craig's right. Um, so where are we? What are the options on the table? So a new relationship for Britain and Europe is what is really being discussed by Number 10 and the Cabinet Office, or leave the EU. Um, and in very typically British fashion, the two options being discussed by the Cabinet Office are being described in Whitehall as mind the gap or widen the channel. <laughs> so they have to actually go and explain to Continentals what they mean by that. <laughs> mind the gap. Everyone went, oh, that's the tubes, right? They say, yes, this means they want more safeguards for the UK, particularly protections for financial services. Widen the channel would be make the gap between Britain and the continent even bigger by more opt-outs for the UK. And then we have the two kind of leave options, which 
Whitehall's not looking at, but other people are looking at, not just UKIP, um, some think tanks. There's the Norwegian option, which would be to leave the EU but remain in the single market in what's called the European Economic Area. I like to call this the Puerto Rico of the EU. (laughs) Norway is the Puerto Rico of the EU in the sense that it has free movement of people, free movement of goods, services, capital and labour, uh, has, uh, doesn't have to pay into, well, pay some smaller amount into the EU budget and has no representation in Brussels. So it's a commonwealth of the EU in that sense. Switzerland is not even in the EEA. It has a series of bilateral agreements with the EU. And the, the most interesting report I saw on this was from the Foreign Office uh, Committee of the House of Commons in 2013 in a report called Future of the European Union. And the members of the committee went off to Oslo and Bern to meet members of the two parliaments, and they wrote the following in their report. Our witnesses and interlocutors also brought home to us the essential similarity between the positions of Norway and Switzerland, namely that both are in practice obliged to adopt EU legislation over which they have had no effective say. On our visits to Oslo and Bern, we gained the impression that both Norway and Switzerland were prepared to accept what they acknowledged to be a democratic deficit, as the price for their continued access to parts of the single market. However, our interlocutors in both Bern and Oslo largely advised the UK to remain inside the EU as a way of retaining influence over the legislation that would be obliged to adopt if we remained part of the single market. So here's the real, the heart of the dilemma for Britain. You can argue that in a kind of very, in a zero tariffs world with the World Trade Organization, you know, what are the costs of us leaving? We'd still get access to the single market. We'd probably negotiate certain access to the single market. But the real challenge is, is there wouldn't be any trade tariffs, but the EU would be setting all the regulations that we'd have to apply to get access to the single market. I'll give you an example, the REACH Directive. REACH Directive is a directive on the production, distribution, and exchange of chemicals. And a big battle in Brussels in the adoption of this law. And it now covers all companies all over the world that export to the European single market. So tyre manufacturers in India, for example. So any body who uses any set of chemicals listed in this directive has to apply European standards in their production process and European regulatory standards in anything they sell to the European market. The European market is the world's largest market in chemicals and, and consumption of consumer goods. US chemicals manufacturers are now lobbying the US federal government to adopt exactly the same rules because they say it's not fair that domestic producers in the US... Have to, can apply lower standards than we have to apply because we're exporting to Europe. So you can see the massive external effect of the European single market on anybody who's trading with the single market. So you might say that, well, 20% of our GDP is not much, but it's 20% of our GDP that would be essentially regulated by somebody else. But what does Cameron want? So we're still not exactly sure what he wants because he's not really put it down, but these are the four things he mentioned in the European Council summit meeting on the 25th of June. He said sovereignty. We want UK opting out from ever closer union, more protection against deeper integration, what we call red cards for national parliaments to stop the passage of law, and more cutting of red tape, like, for example, the working time directive. He wants fairness. What he means by fairness is protection for the City of London, Um, Meaning, I mean, what he's arguing is there are certain industries concentrated in certain member states where this is the largest proportion of the European financial services industry is here in London, yet all the regulations are being made in Brussels. How fair can that be? This is kind of argument. 
Immigration. He wants reform of the free movement of people. And the key thing he wants is the ability of member states to reduce access to benefits, and particularly housing benefit and in-work benefits. You ca- as a result of a recent court ruling against Germany, any member government in the EU can actually restrict access to benefits for EU migrants. The most difficult thing are the in-work benefits. He listed these two benefits, because actually EU migrants in the UK, they're the only benefits they receive. There's hardly any unemployed. They're not receiving Social Security, and they're not old enough to get state pension. So... The only two benefits they're really getting are housing benefit because of the housing costs in the UK and in-work benefits because they're low paid. So the real trouble here is the in-work benefits. Under EU law, if you provide a benefit to someone in work who's a citizen of your country, you have to provide the same benefit to someone in work from another country. Ironically, Osborne's budget, by raising the minimum wage, what he calls the living wage, actually could take a lot of people out of in-work benefits, which could help him solve this problem. The other thing he says is growth and jobs, meaning a reform agenda for the single market, swift agreement on a transatlantic trade and investment partnership, deal with the US, and so on. The problem is, Europe is not really paying attention. So at this summit meeting in June, somebody sent me the agenda, and the agenda was a morning discussion about the Eurozone crisis in Greece. And they had lunch, and then there was an afternoon discussion about uh, the migrant crisis. And then there was ten minutes where one of the heads of government tweeted, David Cameras gave us a nice interlude (laughs) to talk about Britain and Europe. They're not, you know, he wants to get a deal for a new relationship for Britain, but the rest of Europe is in the midst of an economic crisis and a migrant crisis. They're not going to pay any attention to the UK at the moment. What are the red lines for British swing voters? So this is from YouGov data. These are the percentage of swing voters who say the following are of the utmost importance in any renegotiation for the UK. Immigration, number one. Discretion over immigrant benefits, number two. So also immigration. Reduce the money that Britain pays. Fewer regulations on business. Freer trade with the outside world. Greater control over fishing and so on and so on and so on. It's all about immigration. And this, so the longer the migration crisis goes on, the harder it is, is, is for Cameron to get a deal in Brussels. And the more, for most Brits, the issue of Europe is wrapped up with the issue of immigration. And this, as we head towards a referendum, is the key challenge, I think, for the moderate pro-Europeans who would like, perhaps, to win the referendum campaign. In fact, on that note... YouGov has a referendum tracker where every week they include in their, their, uh, their surveys a question on, on how would you vote, would you vote to remain or would you vote to leave? And this is then the percentage who said they would vote to remain minus the percentage who said they would vote to leave. So this, proportion, this portion here is the fact that a majority now saying they would vote to stay in the YouGov tracker. It's a small majority, around 5%. In fact, but recently we saw an Ipsos Mori poll that was 43 vote to stay, 40% vote to leave. Very, very close. Too early to tell. The earliest we could have the referendum, I think, is uh, a year from now, in 2016. More likely, probably, in early 2017. Um, there's a long way to go from here to there. There's a really good chance we could vote to leave. This is attitudes towards support and leaving based on your party who you support. There's 6% of UKIP voters who say they'd vote to stay in the EU. (laughs) Go figure. 
a majority of conservative voters, majority of people who voted conservative in the last election in the UK is telling people that they will vote to leave. There's a huge, there's a schism right down the middle of the Conservative Party amongst their electorate. And this is what, this explains Cameron's dithering position. Labour, SNP, Lib Dems, other party, um, applied here, you can see overwhelmingly pro-European. Overwhelmingly pro-European on the centre and liberal left in British politics. The right overwhelmingly split. If you're a pro-European, the worry you would have is the phenomenon of lazy labour. Lazy labour explains why the pollsters had labour on around 35% in the polls, building up to the election, and they got 30% on election day. And all the pollsters are saying, how did that happen? And they look back and they realise that they'd overestimated labour turnout. People who were saying, are you going to vote? You know, what's the probability on a scale of 0 to 10 that you're going to vote? And people would say, oh, 8 or 9. And how are you going to vote? Labour, for sure. And then they didn't actually vote. You can look back in the British election study, which is a panel study where they asked people before and after the election. And you can imagine if this is Cameron's referendum, Cameron's referendum. He's negotiated opt-outs and he's negotiated getting rid of social policy protection and, and a British opt-out from the Working Time Directive and um, a commitment for the new Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. The City of London is saying we have protection for financial services. Please vote to stay in. So London and the chattering classes in London and the Guardian editor and the Times editor and everyone else telling us we should stay in. And if you're a voter, is a Labour voter in the north of England... Low paid, on, used to be on in-work benefits. Um, you're saying, why should I turn out to vote? Why should I turn out to vote? What, what's in it for me? Can we give Cameron a bloody nose by not voting if it's his referendum? So on the 43-40 poll, I bet you turnout's going to be lower amongst those people saying they're going to vote to remain than amongst those people who are saying they're going to vote to leave. And this is the real challenge. I was at the Labour conference on Monday on a round table on um, Britain and Europe and one of the MPs who attended from Chester, Chris Matt, who is my former flatmate, was an undergrad here at the LSE, uh, Chris Madison, he said, he goes door to door in Chester and he's worried that lower income voters in the north of England who are actually anti-European voted Labour at the last election, want to vote to leave and if Labour runs a very pro-European campaign they could easily go with UKIP. So he reckons this referendum could have the same effect as the Scottish independence referendum in Scotland, where Labour, in a sense, was on the losing side of the debate, even though they won the referendum, they're on the losing side of the debate. So what he worries is that we vote to stay in, it's a narrow margin, Labour gets seen as articulating the pro-European side, UKIP gets seen as articulating the anti-European side. They lose a lot of Labour voters to the UKIP campaign. Once you voted UKIP once, you voted again. So a big worry for Labour in the north of England. And this comes to the geeky political science bit. Um, this is the BES, British Election Study data, the most recent data. Uh, they've got a question in the most recent data saying support for leaving the EU. And so these are all different categories of, of voters. I've got their political preferences, whether they think immigration or e economics is an issue, their educational status, their age range, their income, men or women, and white British versus non-white British. So, and this is then the, in the, the probability of you being on the, in favour of leaving versus the probability of you being in favour of staying in. So you can see here, 
People, this is compared to centrist voters. The left are far more likely to say they want to stay in. The right far more likely to say they want to leave. This is Lasky here. The left who see Europe as progressive politics, social regulation, environment regulation, gender equality, women's rights, and so on. The right see it as red tape from Brussels, as Margaret Thatcher said famously in her Bruges speech, we did not roll back the state in London to have it reimposed from Brussels. People who rate economics as their most important issue are statistically more likely to say they want to stay in. People who say immigration is the most important issue overwhelmingly more likely, 30% more likely to want to leave. Education compared to people still studying, my students. Um, people who left school before 17, people who left school between 17 and 19, people who left school after 20, lower educated groups are more anti-European. Age groups are quite interesting. The over 65s are actually quite pro-European. The anti-European groups are the 36 to 65s, sort of middle-aged. Actually, you're young if you're 46, I think. But anyway. <laughs> um, and then the income groups here, compared to the very high income groups of over £100,000 uh, family income, you can see here it's the lower income groups. No difference between men and women in this data. White British more, more anti-EU than non-white British. So these are the classic UKIP voters, former Labour voters. Lower income, white British, middle-aged, low levels of education, who care about immigration. These are the people who've been switching from what traditionally were supporting Labour to now supporting UKIP. And these are the voters who Labour could lose in a, in a campaign to stay in the EU. There's variation across the country too. So this is in comparison to Scotland, because Scotland is the part of the country most pro-European. So these are your Wales, you're around 8% more likely to be in favour of leaving. London, around 9% more likely than Scotland to be in favour, which is still low. It's the Midlands and the eastern region and the north of England and the southeast and southwest. So these are going to be the critical battle areas. In fact, the, the Midlands and the eastern region, you can't break it down any more fine-grained with this data, unfortunately. This was how we voted in 75. Well, not me, but this is how other people voted in 1975. And we voted in 1975 on a referendum on staying in the European communities. Two-thirds voted to stay in, one-third voted to leave. The darker the colour here, the darker the green, the more the, read, the county voted to stay in. The lighter the colour the more they voted to leave. And if you were red, you actually voted as a majority to leave. Scotland and Wales were the two parts of the country that were more in favour of us leaving back then. Southeast of England, Sussex, where I'm from, most in favour of staying in. And it's the reverse picture now. Why? Well, this is how Lasky. So back in the 70s, the EU represented, or European integration represented, liberalised markets. Um, the breaking up of nationalised industries, privatisation, removing barriers to free movement. The labour unions in Scotland and Wales were totally opposed. This would undermine British social democracy. And now it's the reverse. Now the right sees European integration as imposing red tape and regulation on us. And the left is saying it's the only way we can maintain these social standards against a government that wants to get rid of these things. Famous trade union speech by Jacques Delors in 1988 came to the Trade Union Congress in Brighton. Everything happens in Brighton. <laughs> and 
he made a famous speech where he said, Margaret Thatcher is cutting all your rights here in London, but I'm proposing them back again in Brussels. And we can impose our rules on the UK, social standards, environment standards, minimum working conditions, um, working time directive. And there was like a, uh, you know, the, the, a moment where the British trade union movement moved en masse to become pro-European and the Labour Party moved from 1983 having a manifesto to leave the EU to the late 1980s and early 90s having manifestos to join the Euro. That's how far Labour and the left in Britain moved in that period. So what have I said? So Britain has always been an outlier. And the UK public has mistakenly seen European integration as primarily an economic project rather than a political one. This is now even more acute with deeper economic and monetary union within the Eurozone and Britain's isolation from this emerging arena of democratic politics that we're now seeing that the rest of Europe seems to have bought into. So what are the choices for Britain? Leave now, negotiate partial access to the single market. Could we be the Canada to the EU, to the EU's US? You know, deeper federal union on the continent, we're separate, we're Canada. It doesn't seem so bad for Canada, you might argue. They get access to the US market. Um, not, they don't have to suffer all the rules, Washington says, but they have to accept a lot of them. Or we stay in. Do we stay in and take a lead on trying to develop a framework for a two-tier Europe, recognising the fact that there's a gap growing between regulation of the single market and deeper monetary union within the Eurozone and the countries that would join the Eurozone? And we would necessarily be on the second tier in this structure. Or do we stay in and we start to re-engage? We don't join the euro, probably, but we re-engage in the council. We take a leadership role that we used to take in the 1980s. The Conservatives rejoin the main political party in Europe, Merkel's party, the European People's Party. Why would you opt out and leave the main, the dominant political force in Brussels voluntarily when Cameron, in his election campaign to be leader of the Conservatives, committed the Conservatives to do that, he thought this was pretty cheap and easy. Nobody cares about European politics. And now he's finding the costs of that. He's isolated from the meetings of the EPP leaders before the summit meetings where all of the big deals are being done. Labour should re-engage with the Social Democrats in Europe and, and the choice of the candidate for the Spitzenkandidat, the, the lead candidate for the 2019 elections. We should probably join the European Migration Burden Scheme and help shape it. Currently, we're standing on the sidelines saying, you should have done it like this, you should have done it like that. So, actually, some of you might be interested to know that my preferences have changed quite a bit over the last six months. Of course, I would like this. But I actually think the difference between one and two here is really marginal. The difference between being isolated outside the EU and negotiating some kind of access to the single market, or as being inside the EU and not being part of mainstream decision-making is much more marginal than I think people claim, particularly if we're going to opt out from more and more things. So actually, I think whether we're, we're you know, Texas or Canada to, is not, doesn't particularly matter. What I would like us to be is to be back at the top table leading, and I only think there's, it's only worth staying in if our political class 
is willing to take the step and the commitment to say we should stay in and we should take, retake a leadership role on some of the key issues that we care about. Thanks, Simon. I don't think you need me to tell you that was a terrific lecture. The applause just did. All right. We have some time for questions. And let me ask you if you have a question to raise your hand, identify yourself, wait for the stewards to bring you the microphone, and then tell us who you are. Questions? Gentleman in the back wearing a tie near the center. Hello, thank you very much for your lecture. I'm uh, Valentin, I'm an LSE alumnus who studied at the European Institute. I was wondering um, whether listening to uh, what Simon has explained uh, very well, there are not now many European countries and European decision makers who are starting to think that in the medium and long term it might be better if Britain were to leave and uh, take the short-term uh, negative impact of such a uh, Brexit and uh, how what Britain can do to counter this uh, sentiment among uh, decision-makers that might well be emerging much further over the coming months. Thank you. Do you want to take about three? Sure. Okay. Another question? Okay. Chetan. Uh, Simon, um, this is Chandran Kukathas from the Government Department. Uh, so you prefer three, but you are ambivalent about one and two. So can you come clean? Do you prefer one or two? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and a question over there. Yeah. Third person in right there by you. Yeah. Hi, I'm Hugo. I'm a first-year undergraduate studying history. Do you think the tariff and the tariffs on non-EU imports and exports into the EU will become increasingly prominent as the campaign to stay or leave goes on? Over to you. Uh, Chandran first. <laughs> um, well, you know, as, as a pro-European Brit, I would say I prefer two to one. But as a pro-European European, I would prefer one to two. So I can see... <laughs> so... <laughs> Depends, depends, depends my feelings when I get up in the morning. Um, you know, so it's, it, it's a very difficult issue because it relates to what Valentin here asked, which is, you know, for the good of European citizens as a whole, including Europeans, um, I think Europe needs to build deeper political integration within the Eurozone. Um, and that, in fact, would be in Britain's interest. Uh, Britain is a thorn in the side on a lot of key issues. Uh, there's growing views I hear in Paris... Berlin and Brussels, particularly from Social Democrats, to say that, you know, Britain doesn't want to be part of anything. Britain is just preaching whenever they come to the meetings. Britain uh, has one hand on the exit door. I speak to British MEPs and they tell me that it's no fun being a British MEP because when they're adopting law in the European Parliament and they want to make, propose an amendment to a piece of legislation, the, their colleagues kind of look at them and say, you might not even be in. Why should we listen to you? Um, so... I can see a point of 
Britain perhaps leaving and saying, we wish you well. After all, it was Churchill who, who called for the United States of Europe. And we like to remember that Churchill called for the United States of Europe. He never expected Britain would be part of it. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe that's where we're heading. And look, would it be so bad? Would it really be so bad that we leave? We're, still, we're a very prosperous country. We probably wouldn't be quite as prosperous if we stay in. But we, you know, we're, and I don't buy that we're a major world power and we can live on our own outside Brussels. That's a load of nonsense. But, but I do think that we were still... The difference between us staying in and leaving when it just comes to regulation of the single market it is much more marginal than I think either the pro-European side or the anti-European side claim. And that's the kind of key point. I'd make on that. Um, so I think I've answered to that. On the tariffs thing, actually, the, with the world, way the WTO is going and moving towards zero tariffs and, and global trade agreements, um, I think that actually, you know, tariff barriers are becoming less of an issue in the debate. They would have been an issue 10, 15 years ago. One interesting thing about is Britain's relationship, trade relationship with the United States. So some of the anti-Europeans are saying, if we leave the EU, we could get a quick transatlantic trade deal with the United States. And if we stay in the EU, it's going to be long and protracted and we're going to get fights about agriculture and fights about food labelling and everything else. Um, and at the end of the day, we might get a deal, but it might be a long way off. Well, again, there's a trade-off. Do you want a better deal? And a, staying in the EU, you will get a better deal with the US. Uh, at the end of the day, there will be a better deal for Europe as a whole negotiating with the US a free trade agreement than Britain leaving now and negotiating a quick deal. You can just look at the... The deal that the EU and the US have both signed with Korea, the two world's largest uh, trade agreements up to date. And Korea got a pretty bad deal on both counts because they were negotiating with these superpowers in terms of to get market access. Um, and so the idea that Britain would get a better deal than the EU if we left, I just don't believe that. I think the US would get a very good deal with the UK. They would like to pick us off one by one if they could. Uh, <laughs> Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not going with that. <laughs> All right, more questions. Okay, we've uh, got a whole bunch, so let's go Sarah first row, then we'll go over here, then we'll go over here. And then we'll go in the next round up there. So, look. Uh, Sarah Hobel, the Government Department, European Institute. So I think you really nicely explained how the changing attitudes towards Europe and Britain has also to do with sort of left-right politics. But doesn't that present a problem for Cameron in his renegotiation? Because if he comes back with some of the things he wants um, on trade, TTIP, deregulation, then he'll alienate, alienate the left and the trade unions. And if he doesn't come back with anything, he's not going to win over the right. So in other words, you know, the renegotiation can split the left and the right mainstream. Valentino Larcinese from the government department. Simon, aren't you slightly concerned that sentiment towards Europe is changing across Europe, not just in Britain? When I think of Italy, there was overwhelming support only 10 years ago and today is plummeted to something like 40%. And, and the perception that Europe is becoming increasingly German-dominated is especially worrying, especially in Southern European countries. So uh, would then this kind of, uh, how would you think this could play in a British decision uh, whether, you know, to join um, an area which is uh, perceivably increased as, you know, a sort of a German empire? <laughs> 
Um, thank you. Uh, my name is Arvin. I'm a master's student uh, doing EU politics. Um, I have a question. Uh, you, you intimated that there is a certain demographics uh, in, among Labour supporters who are likely to change their allegiances to UKIP, namely uh, middle-aged, white British uh, people. So, uh, However, having read a lot of commentators who are traditionally pro-Labour, uh, there is definitely a considerable even palpable, considerable uh, outrage uh, at a lot of European issues among highly educated Labour supporters, especially over what happened in Greece, uh, especially uh, about secretive TTIP um, negotiations, even the migrant crisis. So would you, would you I, I would just like to hear your opinion, especially under the le- leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, would you, wouldn't you think that there would be more and more anti-EU Labour supporters, even among more educated ones? Thank you. Very good. Okay. Uh, we can put the, those two together, actually. It's very similar to Sarah's point. Um, and, you know, my, my, the data, the public opinion data, really shows that higher educated groups on the left are the most pro-European people in the country, particularly if you live in Islington. Um, <laughs> but, the, you know, to, Matt Goodwin and, and Rob Ford wrote a whole book about this, and they made a key point about the UKIP supporters being... And the main argument they made was UKIP, in the medium term, is a bigger threat to Labour than the art of the Conservatives, given the nature of the support base that I've characterised. But you're right, there's growing opposition, or growing criticism... What's the opposition? There's growing criticism of the EU as a project, as opposed to 10 years ago. The way Europe has dealt with Greece... Um, the anti-democratic nature, um, particularly of a sort of democratically elected left government, having to accept an imposed austerity program from Brussels, so that's the perception. Um, uh, The way that Europe is now dealing with the migration crisis, uh, voices on the left very critical of of the transatlantic trade investment partnership. This is largely to do with the fact that the current majority of governments in Europe are on the centre-right, Europe. The right is dominating Europe. The right has a majority in the Commission. The right has a majority in the Council. The right has a majority in the European Parliament. But instead of seeing this as European politics, we'll get them next time, it's blame all of Europe because we're getting right-wing policies out of Brussels. So this is, I think, why there's a mismatch between perceptions of, of, of Brussels saying this is EU policy. It's not EU policy. This is the policy of the governments that currently run the EU and of the, the majority in the European Parliament that currently runs the EU. Under a different political majority, we'd have very different policies. In the late, late 1990s, we had a centre-left majority in the Council, a centre-left majority in the Commission, and a centre-left majority in the European Parliament. And lo and behold, we got a load of social and environment regulation. So, I mean, you know, we should accept that there's politics in Brussels and the left and the right win. But I, I don't think that the educated centre-left, they'll be critical of Brussels, but they're unlikely to go out and vote to leave. So, and I think this is exactly the kind of argument that they were having in the Labour conference this week. What I really worry about on this is Corbyn, with his new politics, says, we'll have a free vote. I disagree with my cabinet colleagues. There's clearly some voices here. And then you might actually get some Labour figures coming out and campaigning to leave. Some very senior Labour figures. And that might actually mobilise some of these voters to actually come out even more on the anti-side. And and this is where there's a dilemma uh, uh, for Cameron, because Cameron, I don't think Cameron is going to get any of these things. He might get some protections for the City of London. He's not going to get opt-outs from social legislation or environment standards. Um, He'll get some vague commitment to TTIP. They're not going to agree TTIP by the middle of next year. Uh, So the right are going to be critical, but he's going to say, look, I've got some restrictions on the free movement of people, I've got some protections for the City of London, that's pretty good. And the left will be able to say, we have not opted out. So this is my median expectation of what he's going to get. 
out of Europe. Um, finally, to Valentino then. Yeah, so this, this uh, if Britain leaves, would there be a kind of domino effect or a knock-on effect? Um, the Dutch, the Danes, the Swedes, uh, Hungarians, uh, a lot of places are, are watching very closely what if Britain votes to leave. There's a, the issue of Europe played a big role in the recent Danish elections with a party now uh, supporting the government who's committed to a referendum in Denmark. And so there's a, you, you, you're starting to see the kind of, Britain's having an in-out referendum, why can't we have an in-out referendum? Uh, and, and it's not just about German empire or German-dominated Europe. It, it's the idea that Europe used to be this progressive project we could feel warm and cuddly about, and now Europe seems a bit nasty. Uh, nasty in terms of economics, nasty in terms of migrants, and nasty in terms of German dominance. And that's not what I think a lot of pro-Europeans would like to see as their vision of Europe. So, so I do worry that if Britain leaves, there could potentially be a domino effect. And that, in the medium term, could be really another crisis for the EU. Okay, let's go up to the balcony. Any suggestions? Okay. Questions? We've got a gentleman in the back in the center area, man in a blue shirt over on this side. And man in the white shirt there in the third row on that side, in that order. Hello. Uh, There are some members of the audience who voted in 1975. (laughs) (laughs) It was my my very first uh, chance to vote. Um, I'm Richard Allen. I'm a freelance analyst working in banks in the city. Recently, banks. I've worked for two banks who have got headquarters in Edinburgh. Um, my question relates to that. If if um, if Britain votes to leave, where does that? It gives more ammunition for the Scottish nationalists to push for independence. Could what's your views on that, and whether we should be considering that in our vote? And where would that leave Northern Ireland as a bit kind of isolated all on its own there? Would, would we end up with it being England and Wales that was the uh, isolated unit? Any thoughts on that? Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Gentlemen, the blue shirt over here. Let me go over to you. Thank you very much. My name is Nicholas Weber. What are the costs for Europe if Britain leaves? If option one is uh, voted on, what happens to the rest of the European community? Got it. Hi, yes, simple question. If uh, the UK leaves the EU, will that guarantee Scottish independence? Same, similar question. Yeah, very similar. Same answer <laughs> to two different questions. Uh, okay. Thanks for coordinating questions one and three on all rounds of. The, uh, it would probably trigger a Scottish independence referendum. Um, we may be heading towards Scottish independence anyway. I think now we are uh, in a situation in Britain where, for the first time, we have very different politics, a completely different party system in Scotland and England. We've never had that before. Um, in the fifties, the Conservatives were the largest party in Scotland. Um, and it's, it's very difficult to go back from that, in, in that now Labour really are struggling to, to, to get back in Scotland, um, and I think the Scottish elections next spring could well see an SNP majority, and they could again feel they have a mandate um, for a second referendum. 
Uh, and, of course, what they like, what the Scottish nationalists really would like, is that the UK votes to leave and a majority in Scotland does not. And then they would immediately trigger a referendum. I'm still not sure they would win it. I think there's a big difference between actually voting to leave a country and voting to leave the European Union. Uh, and I think that it would still be a very difficult decision for Scotland to leave the UK um, and hope that they would then remain members of the EU, um, particularly with the way European politics is going. They may feel they'd have to be part of the mainstream, they'd have to sign up to the euro, and that would be difficult given the volume of trade with the UK, and so on and so on. It's, just, it's a very difficult situation. I can imagine there would be a second Scottish referendum. It, we may well be heading towards Scottish independence anyway. We might get Scottish independence before a... There could be a second referendum on Britain leaving the EU. It's likely to be close, and it won't be resolved for a generation. When there's another treaty, the next treaty that comes along on deeper monetary and economic union within the Eurozone, and we're asked to ratify that treaty, we will have probably another referendum. And again, there'll be an issue of if we vote no, that means it'll be an in-out referendum. And I can see the issue is not going to be resolved by, even by a close vote to stay in in 2016 or 2017. Um, and that, again, so I think we could see the issues of Scotland and the membership of Europe running for quite some years to come. What would be the cost of us leaving? I mean, the cost of us leaving, the problem for the... If you're trying to articulate a, a leave campaign, the real problem is the uncertainty. It's like the, the campaign for Scottish independence. We don't know what the costs are. And in fact, in the Scottish independence campaign, there's some evidence to suggest that the swing group in the last few weeks of the campaign in Scotland were older, lower-income women who were responding to supermarkets, who were saying, Cameron had all the heads of the supermarkets in number 10, and then they all went out the next day, and they all said, supermarket prices might go up. <laughs> they might go down, but they might go up. And if you're a lower-income, older woman, you, that's really disproportionately of all the people in society who are affected by that issue. Um, and votes swung mobilised hugely. So, uh, you know, we don't know what the question are. And it's this, so there's going to be a big status quo bias. What we know in these type of independence referendums, whether it's independence from a country or whether it's an EU referendum, there's a big status quo bias. A lot of people at the end of the day might say, it's a leap into the dark. We don't know what the costs are. The, the pro-European pro side are saying it's going to cost us billions. We won't get access to the single market. We'll have to accept all of Brussels' regulation. We'll lose our sovereignty. Uh, we won't be regaining it. Um, the anti-side will be saying, we'll be able to trade with the rest of the world. We'll get a free trade agreement with China. And, and we'll be able to slash and burn all this red tape that, that you know, we don't like in the British economy. And, and that'll save us so much money. And we can really then abuse our workers. Um, and <laughs> we have no idea who to believe. That's the problem. <laughs> I think a slogan was just born. Uh, <laughs> Women in the audience, help me out with gender bias, please. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> the woman in the red shirt. First, then we're going to go over here, and then we'll go to the yeah to the back corner and to the gentleman here. Okay, please. Hello, um, I'm Heather Jockins. I am an international relations major, and my question is concerning the Syrian refugee crisis. I know that. Um, 
Europe has been having a hard time dealing with the influx of refugees. And considering some of the data you showed us, especially um, when it comes to the demographics of voters um, and what um, impact they may have in the decision on whether or not the UK stays in the EU, um, should the UK elect to stay in the EU, what impact would the Syrian refugee crisis have? Or let me rephrase that. I said that totally wrong. <laughs> um, but how much impact would the refugee crisis have on whether or not the yeah. UK stays? Okay, great. Hi, um, thanks for the event this evening. It was very informative. I'm Nathan, second year A-level student. My question is, um, if the UK was to leave the European Union, what would be the short-term immediate effects on larger businesses who probably trade in Europe or have like, outsourced work or stuff in other European countries? Pretty good. Thanks. Okay, great. Thanks. And I'm slipping in four on you this time. Okay. So, gentlemen, back. Straight back. Yeah, straight back. Hold your hand up. Yeah. Hello, it's Matthew, a member of the public. UKIP beat... <laughs> UKIP defeated all the other parties in the Euro elections. Was this anti-British party or European party? Okay, great. And the last question of this round, gentlemen, the tie there. Yeah. My name is Ramesh Jasani. Uh, I'm an accountant, but I'm also a businessman. I've got a totally different observation about Europe because um, I've run restaurants and I had a s funny experience that um, uh, we had a French restaurant which was, which was dominated by the French workers and we had uh, quite a few other Europeans' nationalities working in the restaurant. And I couldn't believe that none of them could see eye to eye with one another. And the French always thought they were the superior uh, the, the, there were no English, which is inevitable. <laughs> uh, and the, the Italians thought the, the Spaniards were lower class. The Spanish thought the Portuguese were lower class. And I was in the middle as a total neutral, and I had to sort out quite a few conflicts between them. And I, <laughs> once I had a management meeting, and I, couldn't, I just told them, I thought you are all in Europe. And they all looked at me, and I said, I can't see that you, you people get on well. Because, and what, what my observation basically is that I feel that what you said, that it is the middle, lower middle class who are going to decide the future. Because I feel that the economic crisis that Europe is going through now, it will lead to social tensions. And the other observation I, I made from this is that I think Europe is a great thing if it's just a free trade area because there is so much cultural differences between the different countries. They've got different history and I can't see them ever seeing eye to eye when it comes to crisis. Thank you. So I would like your observation on that, please. Thanks. I'll come to that last. It's subject of another lecture. Um, uh, the refugee crisis, first of all, I mean, the, re the longer the refugee crisis goes on, the, the, the more it plays into the hands of the Leave campaign, because migration is the most important issue for a lot of those voters. 
And it's, they, they successfully, the anti-campaign has successfully managed to put together Europe, EU migration, and non-EU migration, very cleverly in the minds of voters, with the following idea, which is that if we leave the EU, we regain control of our borders. And in a dangerous world with people flowing across Europe, we need control of our borders. It's a very powerful idea. And so the more the crisis goes on, the more that becomes attractive to large parts. For, for economic reasons, for legitimate economic reasons, you might argue, because of competition for public services or competition for, for housing and school places and so on, or for competition over low-paid jobs. So, I mean, it's not illegitimate that certain groups in the country feel threatened by migration. So it's, it's not an illegitimate view. So the longer that crisis goes on, the more I think it plays into the hands of the anti-camera. This is partly why I think... They won't have the referendum in September or October next year. I don't know if any of you noticed, but we always have a refugee crisis in August and September. It's because the Mediterranean is flat in August and September. And people get on boats and come across the Mediterranean. When the weather gets bad, the num- you can look across time. There's a big spike now, but it spikes over time. August, September goes down, spikes August, September, spikes August, September. And so if Cameron was smart, and if there's people around who are smart, you can judge that... Um, <laughs> then they would say, do not have the referendum in October because mig- there'll be another migration crisis and it could be even worse than the one we're facing this year. Um, so he may decide to delay until the spring. Um, larger businesses, Nathan, thanks. Good question. Um, overwhelmingly, big businesses are the groups, uh, among the business community, the members of the CBI particularly, are, are very pro-European. The car manufacturers, even now, despite the banks whinging about financial services regulation from Brussels, they want to stay in the EU. Deutsche Bank are the largest employer down the road here in the city of London. And and there's already whisperings that if we vote to leave, they'll just relocate to Frankfurt. Uh, So, you know, and if you're a car manufacturer, you're making cars for the European market. And you don't know what the what that means in terms of Britain's influence on setting car regulatory standards or or access to the single market and so on. It's the small businesses, who small business community who who cater largely to the British economy or a globalising economy, who who are the ones who face the costs of of social and environment standards. Yes, it's a trade-off. This is your price for being part of the single market. And this relates to this question about about, uh, the free trade area in Europe. Um, there's something qualitatively different between a free trade area and a single market. A free trade area says that you trade in a subset of goods and services. And that could be beneficial to your economy. A single market is something qualitatively different, which means that you actually remove barriers to the total free movement of goods, services, capital and labour. Not another region in the world has managed to create a single market. It's a phenomenal historical achievement in Europe. And we, yes, we could go back to a free trade area, but we would be cutting off huge chunks of our GDP if we did that. But the whole problem, and what we've never really appreciated in Britain, is to have a single market. It's not just about removing barriers. It's about creating new common rules. Otherwise, you can't have a market that functions. Common competition policies, common minimum social standards, common environment standards. If you have the free movement of people, you need rules on migration and asylum and refugees and the free movement of labour. If you have the free movement of capital, you need to have common capital markets, and so on and so on. So if we tore the EU up and started from scratch, there would be overwhelming support to say we still need to keep the single market. And then you'd have to build a set of institutions to govern that single market. 
And you'd say, okay, we'll have an institution, we'll have the government. So then we want to check on the government. How about a parliament? Oh, we'll have a court. And you'd end up building 90% of what we already have. And, and so to govern a single market, you need a political system to govern a single market. And the reason why, ASEAN, and the reason why other regions of the world have not been able to achieve it is they've not been able to build the political system that goes along with create what you need to create a single market. So on UKIP. I think of UKIP as essentially an English national party now. Very like the Scottish National Party, but on the right. They're a party that appeals primarily to an English identity that is overwhelmingly supported in England, although rising support in Wales. Um, and their view, I think, is one that articulates an English section of English society which has felt left out by what has been happening in Britain over the last 20 or 30 years. Call it globalisation, call it Europeanisation, call it what you want. But for a lot of the rest of the country... British politics looks like two political parties that represent two different postcodes in our capital city. So, you know, Conservatives represent Notting Hill, Labour represent Islington, and the rest of the country looks at them and says, who the hell are these guys? And so this is, I think, what is being articulated by, by UKIP and resonates a lot with voters outside our capital city. I think whether you like the future before us or not, you'll agree that you understand it better than you did an hour and a half ago. Please join me in thanking Simon Hicks. <laughs>